Our Father, I thank you again for just bringing your people together this morning in this place. For gathering us together to, to gaze upon Jesus, to gaze upon who you are and what you're like. To remember what you've done in and through the personal work of Jesus. To be reminded of who that makes us and whose we are. Well, who, what our identity really is. And Lord, I pray that you would send us from this place changed. Where our lives reflect all those things, who we are in light of who you are. Lord, I pray that you would speak this morning, that it would be your words. Um, that you just make Jesus known through the preaching, through the singing, through everything that we do. I pray that you would open our ears to hear, that you would speak to each one of us as you have us here. And uh, that you would change us. We love you, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to watch a little YouTube video. I don't know if you could hear that really well, but uh, the kid's name was Ben. That's not me. Um, I'm not the kid he's talking about. I don't know this guy. Uh, but, but I would imagine that this guy really wishes that this video never went viral, right? That it never made its way all around the web. Because I know that it's pretty easy to say some pretty stupid stuff from up here, like just not even thinking, right? And, and we all need a little bit of grace. And so this morning, I'm going to do my part by showing that video to everybody and making fun of him, right? Look, every time I see this video, it just pops up every once in a while on Facebook or something like that. Every time I see this video, like I literally, like I'll be by myself and I'll just start laughing out loud, right? But it's not funny. That's not funny. That's messed up. The only thing that's funny is how absolutely absurd this story is, right? It's, it's absolutely crazy. I mean, that dude, that pastor, punched a kid in the chest. He crumpled him. That's what he said. I crumpled the kid. <laughs> Good job, buddy. <laughs> and the kid, I mean, he, he may have been a punk, kind of annoying, and he may have been irritating him, but that doesn't really matter because he's a kid. And, uh, and you can't just go around hitting a kid. Actually, you can't go around just hitting anybody. That's not okay. And it kind of sounds to me like this dude just got irritated one day, as youth ministers probably do, I imagine, and, uh, and he hit a kid. And then he justified it by like sharing Jesus with him while he was laid out on the ground. <laughs> right? It's really messed up. Those who work with the youth and kids at Redemption Church, I mean, just to be clear, that's not okay. You, you can't hit kids because <laughs> they're irritating you. At Redemption Church, we will not be clocking your kids out of nowhere to get them to read the Bible and take God seriously. That's not how Redemption Kids works. That's not how Redemption Youth is going to work. So if you're looking for a church who won't hit your kids, you found the right place. Right? Also, 
I know, I know, this is probably all unnecessary. But this guy says there is times when that is necessary in order to lead people to Jesus. Right? Like, sometimes you just got to do that. You just got to hit a kid in the chest to, to get him to Jesus. I'm going to go ahead and just strongly disagree. Uh, I don't think that Jesus, uh, the guy who t- said to turn the other cheek and told Peter to put his sword away, I don't think that he would have us hitting people in order to share the gospel. And if, if that does need to be done, if somebody needs to be leveled in order to hear God, I'm just going to go ahead and say, we need to leave that to God. We don't get to do that, okay? Now that we've given this guy plenty of grace, we'll move on a little bit. <laughs> all that said, all that said, we've been spending, we've been in Amos for several weeks, right? We've been in... Uh, the minor prophet Amos for several weeks. Next week will be our last week in Amos. Um, and, and honestly, it's just kind of felt like a big gut punch. It feels like Amos just kind of wandered up from Judah, the shepherd and farmer from Judah turned prophet, wandered up into Israel and just started throwing punches from God, right? And honestly, the function of Amos's message really is like God's sort of like leveling or crumpling his people in order to get their attention, in order to get them to take him seriously. We know that Amos is trying to wake the people of Israel up with his sermons, like he's trying to to shake them out of their slumber, shake them out of their false sense of security. We've been talking about this for weeks. But if we go back to the very beginning of Amos, uh, we see that he wrote all this down sometime after he actually preached the sermons. Verse 1-1 says that the actual preaching took place two years before the earthquake. The earthquake, which some people say here in chapter 9 where we are today, is actually predicted. Okay, the, the, the shaking of the, the capitals and the, the pillars and those things shattering and falling on the heads of the people, as talked about in chapter 9, uh, is believed to be the earthquake that Amos is talking about. And so some of the things that he would have said in those sermons are actually already happening by the time he writes it a few years later. And so Amos, seeing God beginning, beginning to like deliver on his promises of destruction, he goes back and he writes it all down. Maybe he does this to try to get through to the people again. Maybe he sees an opportunity. Maybe they'll listen now. Maybe he does it to urge them to see the signs like of ultimate destruction and exile that he talked about before. Maybe to show them that it's coming. Maybe he did it for future generations, to try to, to try to wake up future generations. Whatever the case, the book of Amos is an urgent call to the reader to wake up and to take the Lord seriously and to take our sin seriously. It's a gut punch. And it's like God is looking over us, kind of like that youth pastor looked at that teenager and saying, like, when are you going to stop playing games with me? God can do that. Not us. We don't get to do that. It's like he's just saying, when are you going to stop playing games with me? Maybe we need to be shaking out of our slumber today. Maybe we need the gut punch of Amos in this season so that we become more aware of the seriousness of our sin. So that we see how like all our sins are acts of treason against the true king. And so that we see how we deserve death. And how we're destroying ourselves. Maybe we need to wake up and consider the question. Are we playing games? Or are we taking the Lord seriously? So we're in Amos chapter 9. It's the last chapter of Amos. If 
you don't know where Amos is, it's in the little books between Psalms and the New Testament. It's right after Joel, right before Obadiah. If you have your Bible, you can turn there, and we're going to read from chapter 9. Or we're going to read the first 10 verses this morning. So Amos chapter 9, verses 1, two, one through 10, it says this. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people, and those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away, not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn. And all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Syrians from Ker? Behold, The eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, disaster shall not overtake or meet us. These are not pleasant things to read every Sunday. First thing I want us to see is who he's talking to specifically. Who's he talking to specifically here? We see it at the very end of that passage, right? It's those who think that disaster shall not overtake and meet us. Those who think that disaster shall not overtake and meet us. J.A. Moyer, in his commentary on Amos 9, he writes this. I just thought it was so good. I was reading this commentary, and I almost just brought it and just read that this morning. It was so good. But he, he says this. He says, his edict here is not against sinners as such, but against one particular category of sinner who says, evil shall not overtake or meet us. These look into the past, and they see nothing to make them alarmed. Nothing in their past to give rise to a calamitous judgment from God to overtake or catch up with them. They are sinners, but they think nothing of the law of God before which they stand condemned, nor of the grace of God by which they could be redeemed. They are complacent, careless sinners living in a world of pretense and make-believe. These are the people who presume upon God, and they act according to their false presumptions instead of reality. And it all started back before this time, right? It started back with Jeroboam 1. After he took ten tribes with him, after the kingdom of Solomon, and he took ten tribes with him, and he split the kingdom in two, he went north, he took the northern kingdom, and then Judah was left in the south. 
in Jeroboam 1, he was worried that if people, like, because Jerusalem is still the place of worship, right? And so he was worried that if people kept going back to Jerusalem year in and year out to worship, that they would eventually be persuaded to follow the rulers of the southern kingdom again, and that he would lose his power. And so Jeroboam decided for his own political gain to set up new places of worship in the northern kingdom, Israel. And he set up these golden calves in these two new cities to be worshipped as God. And then he himself stood in the place of the priest at the altar. And he failed to recognize, Jeroboam 1 failed to recognize that God had given him the kingdom. And that he was sufficient and that he was faithful. And Jeroboam, instead of trusting God, tried to wield God himself tried to wield the religion of the people of of Israel for his own gain. And if you read the books of Kings, you'll kind of see that whole history play out. If you go back in Kings, you'll find this refrain that starts with Jeroboam. And it continues with the kings who come after him. And it goes like this. It says that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, number one. And that by doing so, he made Israel sin. And for the kings that followed Jeroboam after him, who continued in his ways, and it just keeps going, right? The refrain says something like this. He says, it says, And this king did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the way of Jeroboam. He made Israel sin. And then later, here at the time of Avis, another guy named Jeroboam is king. Jeroboam II, as he's called. And he continued to stand in the place of God. Continued to stand beside the altar, playing priest and king, and he also tried to wield God and tried to wield religion for his own political gain. And he continued to lead Israel into the same path as the kings before him. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the ways of Jeroboam 1, and he also made Israel sin by teaching them in practice to presume on God and to use him for their own agendas. You know, it's, it's kind of stock comedy for for somebody to get caught impersonating a person of authority, right? You see this all the time. Like sitcoms love to have like a student like mocking their teacher while the teacher's like standing behind them at the door the whole time, unbeknownst to the student, right? SNL runs the sketches where uh, the celebrity impersonators uh, actually end up impersonating the celebrity to their face, right? Will Ferrell has to be Alex Trebek in front of Alex Trebek. Amy Poehler acts like Hillary Clinton with Hillary Clinton. And it's always funny. It always makes me laugh. Um, because it's awkward. Right? It's awkward when, we, when, when the make-believe authority is confronted with reality. I think inside of those of us who laugh, me, personally, is a fear of being caught in the same predicament ourselves. Right? That we're going to get caught impersonating the authority uh, right in front of the authority. And Amos has this vision of the Lord standing beside the altar. That's how this chapter opens up. Amos has this vision of the Lord standing beside the altar. And it's a vision of reality versus Israel's land of make-believe. It is a vision of, of the reality that it is God who stands in the place of judgment over the kingdom and his people versus the impersonations of like the kings and the people who stand beside the altar and play God in the place of judgment like they have control over God. As Moitier writes, again, they were acting like God and religion were just tools whereby self could be secured and life 
made secure for self. But the reality is that they were setting themselves up for destruction. They were setting themselves up for death. It was leading them nowhere good. See, these kings and their people, they presumed upon God. They presumed on, on their history with God, right? They believed that they were chosen, and rightly so. That's, that's correct. They believed that they were chosen, that God had covenanted with them, and so nothing could happen to them. That's where they go wrong. They believed that because they were chosen and that God covenanted with them, that nothing could happen. And this is why they were so easily able to be deaf to all these warnings that Amos is putting out there of their coming judgment. It just doesn't compute to them. They can't comprehend it. God made promises to reach the nations through Israel from way back in Genesis, right? And to them, that means they have to be above all the nations. In order to reach all the nations, they have to be above all the nations. And so God, who has, God has to keep his promises. So to them, it makes no sense when they hear prophecies of their destruction because in their minds, God can't do that. He made a promise. He has to deliver. So he can't do anything to us. And they're playing games with God. And they have no idea how dangerous it is. They have no idea how serious their sins are. And Amos addresses this mindset in in chapter 9, verse 7 through 8. Where he says, Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Syrians from Ker? Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. Except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. See here, God is confronting their presumptions and revealing his sovereign rule over the nations. Israel kind of plays like they're, they're alone and that, and that God made them a nation and that they are his. But he's saying like Israel isn't alone in their Exodus story. They aren't the only nation that God has made. God is sovereign. God is over all things. All the nations belong to God and God has made all the nations. The only way that Israel is actually unique is in his covenant with them, in which he has made known to them the reality of their sins and promised to deal with the sins of the whole world through them. That's what sets them apart. So if they think that they can presume on God, and if they think that they have God boxed in, and they can use him as they wish, and wield him as they wish, if they think that he has been like rendered unable to punish, his, punish their sins because of his promises, they have another thing coming because the promise in Amos is destruction. Those who aren't killed by the disaster that's coming will be killed by the sword of their enemies in exile. There's no escape. There's nowhere to run as we read the passage. Just like Jonah, the series we went through before this, Jonah couldn't jump to his death from the boat and escape God. He couldn't sink deep enough. He couldn't hide anywhere. God came and got him no matter where he was. So also Israel won't escape God's judgment. They can't escape to Sheol. They can't escape to the heavens. They can't escape to Carmel or to the bottom of the sea or to foreign nations. Wherever they go, God is coming for them. Judgment is coming and they can't escape. And God is just in this. And here's the thing. God is surely both. He is both. He is able to keep his promises to the house of Jacob and he is able to punish the sins with what it deserves, which is death. Being that their sins each expose 
them to be treasonous. All our sins are acts of treason. They expose us as the traitors that we are, looking to stand in the place of God. And Amos reveals here that God is not in their debt. And his grace doesn't imply that their sins and that their treason can or will be ignored. He's going to punish them accordingly. And this is where we need to listen up. This is where we got to listen. Because we also, God is not in our debt. God is not in our debt. And grace and forgiveness, it doesn't imply that our sin can or will be ignored. Yet this is the pretense that we often operate under, right? It's the same that Israel was operating under. The pretense is that God forgives us, so I have nothing to be concerned about. And that idea can like, lead us to some pretty dangerous places where we begin to presume upon God and where we begin to stand in his place, where we wield him for our power and we wield him for our control. And basically we just substitute worshiping other idols and we just slap God's name on it and pretend like it's him that we're worshiping. Like we don't have a golden calf set up. Nobody here probably has a golden calf like in their house that they're worshiping that has like God spray painted on it. But we worship our own security. And we worship our success. And we worship our, rec- our reputations. And we worship our schedules. We worship our pleasure. We worship our stuff. We worship our families. We worship our kids. We worship our relationships. We worship our work. We worship our money. And we can worship all of those things under the guise that we are worshiping God. If we're honest, we wield God and religion and church to get what we want. We do it at the expense of others, whether we realize it or not, too. Like, how many out there won't give Jesus a chance because of the church? How many out there won't give Jesus a chance because of the church and how it's misrepresented Jesus to them? I think that we live in some land of like make-believe where we can worship all these things that I just mentioned and worship God at the same time. But the, the call of Amos, the message of Amos to Israel and to us, the readers now, is wake up. It's just not possible to worship God and anything else. And Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount. You've probably heard it. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. We cannot worship both our idols and God. It's just not possible. And we need to wake up. And we are either, we're either asleep or we're fooling ourselves or both if we think that God, who is just and who is the justifier, is going to bow to us and to our dream world. As if we have, as if we have God in some kind of bind because he sent Jesus to forgive us of our sins. Listen, God is not, God's not like our idols. I love how Amos, he, this, this section here in, uh, in 5 and 6, in verses 5 and 6, is kind of like a portion of a hymn. Right? And he, so he just kind of, in the middle of this passage, he just breaks out into a couple verses of him, and it's, it's as if he is to, he's doing it to distinguish who God really is in comparison to the make-believe God that they've worshipped. 
Right? And he says, the Lord of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vaults upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and then pours them out upon the surfaces of the earth. The Lord is his name. He's one. And God is not like our idols. He won't be wielded. He won't be used. We can't do that. He made everything. He's in control of everything. And when we try to use him, we presume upon his goodness and we presume upon his grace. And really what we've done is we've merely created another idol to hold us captive and to lead us toward death and destruction. God is not in our debt. And grace and forgiveness does not imply that our sin can or will be ignored. If we believe otherwise, then we are the people Amos is writing to. Those who believe that disaster shall not overtake or meet us. And we aren't taking God seriously. We're playing games with him. And perhaps, perhaps we haven't understood the good news of Jesus. Because the good news of Jesus is that Jesus isn't proof that God doesn't really care about our sin. That's not what Jesus is proof of. Jesus is proof of just how much God cares about our sin. Like you don't send your only begotten son to die flippantly for something that doesn't matter. Right? No, Jesus came and he lived and he died and he rose again because sin was so serious. Because nobody could defeat it. Because sin was holding God's people captive to idolatry. It was making right relationship with God an impossibility. And it was leading us all to death. And so God went out to defeat sin for the sake of his children. And this is what Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 through 18 says. It says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. God takes our sin seriously. It's treason. It's punishable by death. And Jesus, who the same writer in Hebrews says is the radiance of the glory of God, who's the exact imprint of his nature, who Paul says in Colossians is the is the image of the invisible God. Jesus waged war against the power of sin and death on our behalf, and he won. That's the good news. And he won. And he now, Jesus now, rightly stands beside the altar as our king and priest, the place where Job, Jeroboam too would have stood. He stands rightly as our king and our priest, making a way for us to approach God and to not be judged based on our own power over sin, but to be based on the victory Jesus has had over sin and death. The good news isn't that we've got God where we want him. 
and that we have a license to sin without repercussion. It's a license to be freed from sin and from being enslaved by our idols. The good news is that Jesus won. And he set us free from the power of sin and death. And we can look to him and find ourselves in right relationship with God the Father. He's better than our idols. Jesus is better than our idols. He's way better than our sin. He's our rescuer and he wakes us up to the reality of the power of his spirit. To the reality of who he is by the power of his spirit within us. Maybe you remember how Amos started this book. It's several weeks ago now, but he started by talking about how sinful all the nations outside of Israel were and how God was going to come and judge them. And those who heard it at the beginning were like, yeah, go get all those, those sinners who are out there, right? But they didn't see the trap coming because Amos was talking around them, but he was really coming right at them. And pretty soon the whole thing was turned right on Israel. And he trapped them and they were... And they, they became the central target of judgment, right? For nine chapters. Well, I think that we're actually pretty good at telling others, like even those who don't claim to follow Jesus at, at all, how sinful they are. The church is pretty good at that. The church can, for some reason, often unite around condemning the sins of the world. And it's one of the biggest ways, I think, that the church has misrepresented Jesus to the world around us because we've been hypocrites. Like judging outsiders while not dealing with the sin in our own lives. But what would happen if we got serious about our own sin? What if we united around dealing with the reality of our own idolatry instead of dealing with all the sin that's out there? What if we started acknowledging first our own failures what if we do that thing where we take the log out of our own eye and before we go take the splinter out of somebody else's? What if we acknowledge our own failures and we humbly look to Jesus for victory and freedom from whatever it is that holds us captive, from whatever our idols are? Maybe we'd begin to make the real Jesus known in a city full of people who think they've met him and want nothing to do with him. Maybe we need to bring this inside. Maybe we've got to make it personal this morning and before we leave Amos. And ask the question, like, when are you going to stop playing games with God? When are you going to start taking God seriously? When are you going to start taking your sin seriously? You know, we say this often around here, that being a disciple, you should, we should just memorize this, right? Being a disciple of Jesus means increasingly submitting all of life to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus Christ. That's how we define disciple around here. If that's true about being a disciple, if it means that you're increasingly submitting all of your life to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus Christ, then what's your most recent testimony of how Jesus has freed you from the power of sin and death in a particular area of your life? Is there something recent? Like if something comes to mind that's recent, then you have all the more reason to trust him. You have a recent testimony to say Jesus is at work and the good news of the person at work of Jesus is alive and is working in me to change me and to transform me. And if nothing comes to mind, then it might be time for a gut check. What unevangelized places still exist in your heart? Where haven't you let the good news in yet? 
It could be any of those places I mentioned earlier, work, relationships, family, friends, money, schedules, whatever. What places are left unevangelized? Where hasn't the good news come yet? And are there ways in which you might even be found trying to stand in the place of God? Or that you might be found presuming on God? I want you this morning, I want us this morning to consider the idols in our lives. Consider the idols in your life that you're prone to worship. And just ask the question, like, are they really better than Jesus? Most of the time, I think we just don't even acknowledge that they're there. We don't even acknowledge what we're truly worshiping. But if we just pause for a moment and recognize the idols that we're prone to worship and ask the question, are they better than Jesus? Like press them and ask, what fruit are they yielding in my life? Do they bring me joy? Or if I follow this worship of this idol, does it lead to anger or bitterness or jealousy and envy or something else that's rotten? What promises of God do they cause you to reject and miss out on? Let's respond this morning by remembering Jesus, who's better than our idols. He rightly stands in the place of authority as our ultimate priest, our mediator, who's made a way for us to stand in right relationship with God. Let's remember that forgiveness isn't a license to sin, it's a license to be freed from sin. We can be freed from sin. That's why he came. That's what he's done. So stop playing games. Pause. Look to Jesus. And see that he is better. I just ask you to like prayerfully consider this morning. What it looks like for you to actively submit to him. As king and ruler of your life. What area of life do you need to give to him? Pause and consider, prayerfully consider what it looks like to let the reality of Jesus as king and priest confront your land of make-believe. And the invitation is to let him come in and crush your idols and set you free. We're going to move into a time of response like we do each week. We're going to do a few things. And this time is a time for you to respond in those ways and to consider, begin prayerfully considering what idols have your heart and where you need to submit to Jesus. Um, but as we move into that time, the band will come and they'll lead us in worship um, through song. And the, we'll also have a time for tithe and offering you can give in the, uh, the basket there in the back. There's instructions for giving in all kinds of ways so you can worship in that way. And then each week at Redemption Church, we come during this time and we take communion. So you can come down either one of these side aisles. You can take the bread and you dip it in the wine or the juice. And this represents the body that was given for us and the blood that was shed for us. And when we do this, we're remembering Jesus together. We're remembering Jesus, that he is our Lord and Savior, and we're proclaiming the good news of Jesus to one another in our actions, right? And we're showing each other and we're, we're, we're really enacting how he has unified us and made us into his own people. So that we remember our identity in Christ. So whether you're a Christian, I mean, if you're a Christian, whether you're a, a member at Redemption Church or not, we invite you to come and take that with us, to remember Christ and to proclaim him to one another and to be encouraged by the good news of Jesus Christ in this act. Would you pray with me? Our Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts this morning. 
uh, kind of take those blinders off of us where we, we can't see that we're that bad, where we can't see our sin, where we can't see the idols we, we worship over you, where it's easy for us to write it off and say it's not that big of a deal. Like, give us pause so that we would look to Jesus, see that he is better, that he's the true king, that he's truly good, 